You are listening to Seattle Growth Podcast, available free on iTunes. Every city, every you know, country, every state has uh, you know its development side of uh, you know the thing, and every developer has sites on all those buildings which are you know down and under. Uh, that's where they can you know build high-rise buildings and make money, because that's where they can go upward. They cannot spread uh, you know sideways, but somebody's. Uh, Happiness is another person's, uh, you know, downfall. People and money are flowing into Seattle at unprecedented rates, and the city is undergoing a physical transformation like none other. As Seattle booms, the city has led the nation in the number of cranes in the sky two years in a row. Anyone who even passes through Seattle can visibly see the physical changes underway. But in those buildings being torn down are people, businesses, Lives being changed that we often do not get to see from the outside. I'm Jeff Shulman, and this season of Seattle Growth Podcast gives you insight into the physical transformation of Seattle and the lives this transformation is affecting. You will learn what developers are thinking as they reshape the skyline of our city, how some of your fellow community members are reacting to the changes around them, and what you can do to influence what Seattle will look like. You will gain insight into Seattle's history and what that history means for its future. Through this journey, you will have a better understanding of this dynamic city and the role you can play in shaping its tomorrow. In today's episode of Seattle Growth Podcast, two people share heartfelt stories about how their lives have been impacted by Seattle's changing physical landscape. And to conclude the episode, Ethan Phelps Goodman describes how you could learn about and influence further development in the city. For perspective from a business owner whose building was redeveloped, join me as I have a conversation with Kailash Upadhyay. I am here in a lift ride with Kailash Upadhyay. And Kailash, tell me a little bit, you were saying that you had a restaurant in the U District. Tell me a little bit about what it was. My restaurant was the first Indian restaurant in entire Washington states 45 years ago. That was the oldest restaurant. I bought it in 2009 for $250,000. And uh, when I signed the lease, I was given uh, five years and they said, okay, we'll review after that. But the landlord said, we are not planning to do anything till 2020. And uh, in 2014, when my lease was up, they said, okay, we need the place vacant because we want to build an apartment complex. And so what was the restaurant called? The restaurant's name was Bombay Grill. Uh, the initial, the first name was India House. And uh, then later on, uh, whoever bought it in uh, 2000, uh, they named it Bombay Grill because the gentleman was from Bombay. And I retained it when I bought it in 2009. And how was business? The business was very good. We used to get a lot of people because we had a banquet hall as well. And that was the only Indian restaurant in uh, entire Seattle to have a banquet hall, a hall of its own. And so tell me what happened and when did it happen that you found out that you would no longer be able to stay there? Right after my lease was over in 2014, September, the very next month, they told me that they need to uh, have the place. And uh, so they said, uh, from here after, you are here only on a month-to-month basis. And so what what became of the place that you used to be in? 
they were uh, planning to make an apartment complex, uh, 60 apartments they wanted to make over there versus one. So I guess it was all about the money because I was only paying $7,000 for the entire space and they were planning to make about $60,000 versus $7,000. So obviously the scale of the money won. And so what did that business mean to you while it was operational? That business was my passion, that was my baby, and that was all I came here for back in 2006. I have been in restaurant business uh, since two, uh, 1986, and food has always been my passion. And so what did it mean to you when you were, that was taken away from you? Well, I, I just died my, myself. I mean, my soul just died because that's that's all I wanted to do and wanted to give people the experience of the rich Indian uh, culture uh, we have through food and uh, other uh, you know Indian uh, uh, celebrations we used to host a lot of Indian festivals over there especially uh, a festival called Diwali which is a festival of light uh, which is equivalent to uh, Christmas over here in the United States. Why don't you just pick up the pieces and, and start another restaurant? I lost a lot of money over there because uh, back in 2009 I bought it for 250000 and by 2014 I hadn't even recovered half of my money and um, Besides, I I didn't have place to you know take all those equipments and everything, so I had to let let everything go. I just had no strength left. Uh, my back was totally broken as far as the finances were concerned. How do you feel about this happening to other people around Seattle? I'm sure whoever is in this business or whoever has a passion to serve people, I'm sure they are all heartbroken and uh, financially they are shattered and I can only you know feel their pain because I am going through it and uh, there, there is no way uh, we can recover from this. So walk me back to 2009 when you invested that 250000 and you only had a five-year lease. What were you thinking at that time? We were only going through on the word of our landlord who said they are not planning to do anything till 2020. So, you know, I guess that once our first uh, term of five years of lease is over, they will grant us another five years. So, that, and I was hoping to, you know, get another five years of lease. Uh, that would have made me, you know, recover my money. Plus, I would have, you know, been able to find another place, you know, either in Seattle or Bellevue or wherever. And what would have those extra five years have meant to you emotionally? Those five years would have been... Um, such a you know wonderful time I would have been able to you know take my cuisine to everybody and uh, especially those people who loved my food uh, the way we served I mean we had a lot of nostalgic uh, you know moments in the restaurant when people came and said that hey I dated my wife here and we got married here and uh, when they come back with those uh, you know those kind of memories you know, it, it really used to, you know, make me so feel so good that I was part of their, you know, legacy. There are some people that I've talked to that are really excited. They see some older buildings being torn down and, and nice, shiny, new 
buildings being built with a lot of housing when we have a housing shortage, help them understand some of the downsides of, of what they're seeing as a, of a, a real positive? Well, one thing I, I will have to say that, okay, every every city, every, you know, country, every state has, uh, you know, its uh, development side of, uh, you know, the thing and every uh, developer or every business house who has the money, who has sites on all those buildings which are, you know, down and under, uh, that's where they can, you know, build sky, you know, high rise buildings and make money because that's where they can go upward. They cannot spread, uh, you know, sideways. So <clears throat> I guess, but uh, it is like this, you know, it's somebody's uh, happiness is another person's, uh, you know, downfall. Walk me back to 2009. What were you doing before you bought that restaurant? And, and what was your feelings and emotions at the time of buying that restaurant? I bought that restaurant because back in 2006, when I came here in the United States, I worked in that restaurant as a busboy. Um, that was just for me to get the in, in uh, in-depth knowledge about the restaurant business in the United States. And I worked <clears throat> two jobs till 2009. I worked all seven days from 2006 to 2009, saved enough money so that I could pay for the down payment of the restaurant. What were your emotions at the time that you finally put together that down payment for that restaurant? That was my world. That's all I, I had in my life. And uh, I was very, very happy and proud of my achievement because that was my goal to, you know, have a restaurant, take the cuisine to the people and give them the, the best experience that Indian cuisine has to offer. So now that that restaurant, uh, that, that you've lost it, what does the future look like for you personally? I don't see, uh, as far as myself is concerned, I, I don't see, all, you know, putting down that kind of money anymore because I am afraid of you know going through the same uh, thing maybe five or ten years down the line. And so what do you think you'll do instead of, of sharing your cuisine with the world? Right now I have uh, started uh, teaching people about Indian cuisine. I do cooking classes. I'm a private chef right now and uh, I teach people how to cook the best Indian food they can. And so would you say that now that you've found a new calling that that uh, you've recovered emotionally? Not really. I, I will never be able to recover from uh, losing the restaurant because uh, that's what I wanted to. You can do a lot of things by being in a restaurant. Uh, I, I cannot do as much as what I'm doing right now by being out of the restaurant. Because that's where you, you meet people every single day. So that, of course, will always remain my dream to you know, go back to the restaurant business. There is a saying in India uh, that uh, to a man's heart is through his stomach. And uh, that's what I was doing. You know, I was winning everybody through their stomach. But since I don't have uh, the means to you know, go through people's stomach, I probably won't be able to win anybody's heart. What have the people lost by having lost this uh, this restaurant of yours? A lot of people uh, still uh, call me and say that we really miss you, miss your food, and that was the best Indian restaurant we we could ever have. 
So I, I miss everybody. I miss all those times which we used to, you know, do, um, you know, together as a fundraiser, uh, meet new people. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to miss all those, you know, good times. So it's, it's a bad, it's, it's a very sad uh, end of the restaurant which started 45 years ago. And so this is the end of our ride here, and I want to thank you for, for sharing your story. Uh, do you want to tell people how they could reach you if, if they wanted to uh, show their support or to hire you for, for cooking classes or, or your new <clears throat> ventures? Absolutely. I would be delighted to um, bring my services to anybody who would like to learn about Indian cooking. Or even if you know, would, uh, if you like to have a small party in your house, I can be your private chef and... Um, my number is 206-794-9434. That's 206-794-9434. And my email address is k-a-a-i-l-a-s-h-u at gmail.com. Hey, thank you so much for the ride and thank you for sharing your story. And, and I hope that there's better days ahead for you and, and your passion for cooking. Mr. Jeff, thank you so very much for, um, you know, giving me this opportunity to share my, you know, a few moments of my passion with you. And I am uh, hopeful that whoever reads or uh, listens to this podcast will be able to, you know, understand the ongoing uh, struggle of the people who are, you know, going through all these kind of uh, problems in the disguise of uh, new developments. Still to come on this episode is an interview sharing details about a tool that allows you to see the development planned in your community and to easily share feedback with the developer. But first, for perspective from a resident who has seen the buildings and businesses change around her, join me as I sit down with Queen Pearl Richard. I am here with Queen Pearl Richard. She is a noted activist here in Seattle. Uh, queen or Pearl? <laughs> See what I say? Well, I'm Queen. Okay. And I am a Pearl. And just on the record, my real name is Marguerite Laurie Richard. And uh, Marguerite means Pearl. So it's very fitting that uh, I'm named Pearl and I'm also a queen. <laughs> well, thank you very much for joining me. I appreciate your time here today. Oh, you're welcome. So why don't you start by telling me just a little bit about yourself? Well, I was born and raised here in Seattle, Washington, and I'm also very active in social justice because I had an aunt that was very active in social justice. Helen Louise summarized my aunt was able to one day go to Washington, D.C., and be on the Capitol, which they called Resurrection City. And at that time, um, there was a lot going on back in the 60s and the 70s. And so it's kind of difficult to get away from something that you were brought up doing. Get up. It's time to boycott. What? School district? Uh, Safeway? Um, just about anything that was going on irrational with black people back in the 60s, um, our family was involved in it in terms of going against the grain. Now, I'm not saying that our behavior was irrational because a lot of the things that my aunt strived for, she was uh, doing things that changed the whole makeup of Seattle. Like my uncle became the first black radio announcer and also a uh, black um, male to own his own 
record store on Jackson Street. Not from here, but came here and brought jazz to Seattle. Walk me through what life was like in Seattle for you growing up. Being on Jackson Street was very multicultural. So we saw a little bit of everything um, surrounding us. Uh, Right now, you would call it uh, International District, but it always be Chinatown to me because I was there when it was named Chinatown. And my uncle, like I said, he had a Black-owned business right in the heart of it. Then next door was a barbershop, Jones Barbershop, and he was Black. Then you had a liquor store. Then you had an Asian business, which was kind of like a Chinese fast food kitchen. And then across the street, we had Mama's, and she was Mexican, and she had her fruit stand, and we go and buy fruit from her. And then we had another cafe across the street. Now I'm talking about right there on 12th and Jackson. That's where my uncle's business was. Then this place called the black and tan. That was the highlight of the supper clubs back then. And you could go, you could find anybody uh, coming in there that was of age and not of age. (laughs) I'm not telling on myself, not me. But there's many people that went to the black and tan that weren't 21. You can believe that. When people say the good times, those were the good times because whenever you see blacks congregating, just like in Harlem and other places, you know something good is going to come out of it. The music, the food, the, um, the art form is just something that it's like none other just being able to be a part of that culture. And so right now I think we're at a culture shock because of the fact that uh, Red Apple is over there uh, as a store, but there's other places in that vicinity that used to be just black at one point. And, uh, You turn around and you see all of a sudden when they had money to have a business, now it looks like whatever money that they had doesn't make any difference anymore once the big man comes in with millions and millions of dollars and comes in with the wrecking ball and says, this is prime property. I have the money to buy you out. So now what are you going to do? So I remember us just being so together back in the 60s and the 70s, and um, there's very few that are left. What changes are you observing to the places you used to go? What's there now, and what's your attitude towards them? So Thompson's point of view, that restaurant is no longer there, and then next to it was Liberty Bank. And that was something that we prided ourselves in is to have a black bank that was black owned and black ran. So it's no longer there. It's a big hole. But they said that Capitol Hill Housing has it and they're going to be doing some things there. Then the post office went. My uncle worked there at that post office. Um, I'm just trying to think of some of the other little, oh, they had the drugstore on the corner and now it's apartment buildings. 
going forward, as Seattle continues to have more people move in and more money move in, what would you like to see happen? Well, I would like the businesses to come back because I feel like there's still people here that are business-minded, and I would like the arts to come back in a way that the arts were presented to us back when we were vibrant and we were doing well. I don't like the fact that a lot of people are leaving Seattle um, that I know, or either they're moving to Kent renting in other places what's wrong with Seattle being what I felt like my uncle did he he brought us together he brought all races together when he was there on Jackson Street I don't understand it it just really uh like if I had somewhere else to go and I had the money to go just to see if I could live somewhere else just for once one day I would work my way back here to say, oh, things are not better anywhere else for blacks than they are here. So what are you doing trying to move away from here? But I do, I feel very heartbroken that I've met people that are black that are saying, I can't take Seattle anymore. And so that's the hurting factor um, that a person could, be gentrified, gentrified in a community as such, and then feel that churches can go away. I mean, black churches can go away also because of the financial instability. And then after they go away, where's the framework when the church has always been the backbone of the black community? And so what are you losing personally when you're seeing your friends and other members of the black community move out of Seattle? I feel that I'm losing um, heart. I'm losing heart in something that, like I said, once was that the culture I feel that was embraced. It's like you're fighting for your culture to come back or be saved from something. One group of people says that this is the way we, we're going to have it. And we're going to marginalize you. And we're going to keep marginalizing you. And we're not going to allow you to ever, ever, like they said, the, this nightmare, the American dream, we're not going to allow you to have it here. Go somewhere else. But this domain, this Pacific Northwest, is not for you to focus in on. You go somewhere else and try to achieve that because the makeup that is set for you doesn't include you. And I know that that might sound pretty harsh, but I bet you there's some other people that might agree with me. This is a tough question, uh, but what do you think white people can do to help make a thriving black community here in Seattle? Looking into the eye of a person that's not begging you like they said. We're not asking for a hand up, just a hand or a handout. We, we, we're asking, like they said, you need to get in where you fit in. Well, where do blacks fit in? huh? If they're being shifted here, shifted there, and shifted everywhere, but there's always a place in the prison system for them. And I just really feel 
that the black race has been punished enough. And so when you say, what can they do? They can stop punishing us for being here because it's not like we're going to go anywhere. We're going to remain here because we're creations of God. So we're not going anywhere. So wouldn't you think it would be proper and just to just like Rodney King said, can we all get along? For somebody who wants to help out and who hasn't partaken in some of the uh, disenfranchisement that, that has occurred, do you have any specific recommendations as to what that person can do? If I had to reach out culturally, I would go back to those churches and find out why are they leaving? What happened? Just like progressive used to be a Presbyterian church. I'm learning all this because I've been there. They just closed their doors after a hundred some odd years over there by Seattle University off of Spring Street. So that's one door that closed. They had many black people trickling in and out of. Okay, and Mount Zion Baptist Church is another one. And that church is full of history. So if you have historians in there that know all about the makings of the redlining, the places that blacks couldn't even live in Seattle when my mother came here in the 40s, go back, go back and pull from them and learn from them. Let them tell you what the struggle was all about how they ended up here. If you can get a message out to the people of Seattle about what they could do to make Seattle a place that, that you would be proud to call home uh, as it continues to undergo this current transformation, what would you say? Well, I have to still focus in on the fact that uh, poverty to me is a form of abuse. So if I was going to reach out to the people, I would try to figure out why that still, when you look at the statistics, it still says that they're disenfranchised and they still seem like they're up under some type of regime where they don't have total control over their lives. Yeah, that's it. When are blacks going to be able to have total control over their lives? Because right now, systemically, even with the police, the police are dropping. And that is not good. I'm just saying that it's not good because they're labeling the police with the blacks. Like blacks, okay, blacks, you attack the police. Police, you attack, you attack the blacks. And that's not good. But that's all you're hearing about lately. And I think that's bad that we have pushed ourselves into that mode, into that arena in America and in society that we're using that to uh, destroy uh, each other or to destroy a sense of community. Because if you can't walk or eat or sleep and go where you want and have to live in fear, I think that's one of the worst things ever. So I, I would tell people to, I guess the opposite of fear is love. And I feel like we should embrace that, the the love side, because I don't think if we keep on this road of fear, then we're going to see some of the worst atrocities ever that anybody uh, 
have has ever seen in in uh, the United States of America. Queen Pearl Richard, thank you so much for your time and your perspective. It was really a pleasure hearing your voice today. Thank you. Thank you. Kailash and Queen Pearl are not alone in their experiences. As new development pops up into your neighborhood, what can you do to have your voice be heard? To find out, join me as I sit down with a software engineer who has developed a tool to help you learn about and influence development in Seattle. I am here with Ethan Phelps Goodman. He is the founder of Seattle in Progress and also Seattle Tech Workers for Housing. Ethan, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Uh, So why don't you start by telling me a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I'm a software developer by trade, um, but I've been working for a number of years in sort of civic engagement and civic technology and government transparency and those sorts of issues. So tell me a little bit about Seattle in Progress. Seattle in Progress is a result of kind of just being a resident here in Seattle and seeing the city change and seeing everything that was being built and, and wanting myself to know more about what was being built in my neighborhood. So it's, uh, it's basically just a map of development projects. So any new building in Seattle, either one that's going through construction right now or one that's going through the permitting process and is being planned. And if you open up seattleinprogress.com, you'll get a map of wherever you are at the moment and you'll get pins for all the proposed or current uh, buildings. And if you click on one, this is the great part, you see a 3D rendering from the architects of what that proposed building is going to look like. And tell me, what went into to building this? So the data all comes from the city and from the architects that are building the projects. Uh, and it's part of a public process here in Seattle called Design Review that we've had for over 20 years. Um, but up until Seattle in Progress, it wasn't really easy to access that information. So the information existed, the, the 3D renderings existed in city files, but they were a real pain in the ass to find. You would never just stumble upon them accidentally. Uh, so what Seattle in Progress does is takes this data that's been public technically for 20 years and makes it as easy as just popping open a web page, clicking on a pen, seeing pictures of the building. And what do you hope comes of this project? So, you know, we have design review because it's important for people to know what's going on in their neighborhoods. It's important for people to be able to affect what's being built in their neighborhoods. And that process was only being engaged with by a very small section of people. Uh, so I'm hoping that a much broader section of people get to just get the information about how their neighborhood is changing uh, and also become part of the process and, and voice their opinion on local projects. And what is the benefit of more people becoming informed of how the neighborhoods are changing and, and getting involved in that process? Well, one of, its, one of the benefits, I think, is just psychological uh, of, you know, you can do something about change when you know about it ahead of time. Too many people, I think, were seeing a building going up, seeing a construction site after six months or nine months of construction, they see that it's going to be something they don't like. And it's obviously much too late to do anything about it uh, once the, the framing's already done on construction. Uh, the time to engage in that process is two years earlier in the pipeline. Uh, so I'm hoping that people will feel more of a sense of control uh, if they know what public processes exist already to engage. Um, and even if they don't engage, even if they don't give a comment on a project, just to know that something is coming, to know that they did have an opportunity uh, to voice their opinion on the project, I think is very important. And it could be pretty daunting uh, to engage. So what could somebody, how easy or how difficult is it to engage uh, once they get on seattleinprogress.com and see the changes that are happening? Yeah, so uh, a lot of people, I shouldn't say a lot, a very small (laughs) group of people go to the meetings. These are held in the evenings, um, 
you know, it might be a 6.30 to 7.30 thing downtown where the architects come in person and you can offer public comment in person. Uh, what I'd like to see more of, because that's a big ask for people, you know, if you might have to get a sitter, you might have to get time off work if you work in the evenings. Um, public meetings are actually a fairly limiting part of public engagement. Uh, so what I'm interested in seeing is getting more people to be able to engage online. So I think there are vastly more people who can give 10 minutes of time on their phone to, to voicing their opinion, but can't really be expected to give three hours out of their Wednesday evening. Uh, so with Seattle in Progress, if a project is up for review, if there's somebody actually actively considering the project at the moment, we'll give a link to the email address uh, of the person at the city of Seattle who handles that project, and you can just click that. It'll pop you over to your email client, and you can you know, fill in whatever your thoughts are on that. So somebody can go to seattleinprogress.com, see what changes are proposed for their neighborhood, and then click an email, uh, er, click one button, and send off an email. Mm -hmm. Does that ever work? Yeah, um, absolutely. Projects are changed all the time. Now, some, some people end up frustrated by design review. It's certainly not a perfect process. Um, you see a lot of neighbors with concerns over parking. Uh, you see a lot of neighbors with concerns over the general sort of height of the building. Uh, but this is design review. It is a process that exists expressly to address the design qualities of the building. And that very clearly does not include parking considerations. Uh, that does not include the overall height of the building if it's being built to allowable codes. Um, so some people end up frustrated with the process if what they really wanted was to stop the project, for instance. That doesn't typically happen. Or if what they wanted was to add a lot more parking to the project. That doesn't typically happen. But in terms of the design of the building, absolutely, that regularly changes through uh, input from design review. And if somebody is concerned about the types of stores, restaurants, bars, um, what kind of businesses are going to show up into the development, can they use seattleinprogress.com to voice what they hope uh, what kind of businesses they hope to serve their community in the new development? So that's not officially part of the design review process. That's something that you probably have to get into a more in-depth conversation with the developer about. Um, but, you know, since developers are sort of under some pressure through this public process, uh, that is a good time to go to them with your concerns, especially if you can go to them as a group with the community. So, uh, you know, somebody building a large apartment project is probably unlikely to hear the complaints of a single person who writes an email, but if you have a neighborhood group and you get uh, together some support, they're a lot more likely to take a meeting you know, with an organized group of people. And can they access the information, the contact information for the people that could help them bring the businesses they want to their community? Yeah, you, uh, you can see who the developer is. Um, developers for any sort of larger project give their contact information. Um, there's a sort of different type of development business when it comes to townhomes and small projects. Those are often done under LLCs and a little bit anonymous. So if it's, you know, three townhome units going in in a low-rise neighborhood, that can actually be harder to track down who the who the builder is. But on any sort of big project, they're, they're very upfront about who's involved. So your passion, it seems, is bringing data more accessible. Uh, help us understand the data what how much developing is actually happening right now well right now depends on what time frame you're looking at so real estate as we all know is very very cyclical so this year in 2016 we'll probably build about 7000 new units of housing 
that's about what we built last year in 2015, but that's less than we built in 2014. So we've, we've actually passed the peak uh, of this latest round of development. We're about 1,000 units a year down from what we were in 2014. Uh, but then there was a trough after the recession. The trough in building hit about 2011. Um, so over the last, say, decade, we average about five, 6,000 units of housing built a year. And then does your site also speak to not just housing, but also uh, office development and other forms of new buildings? It does. You get a lot less public interest in that, I'd say. I'd say you know, the average person on the street is very concerned with um, housing as their number one concern. But I do track office space, um, parking, retail space, things like that. But that's more of a commercial audience that's interested in those numbers. And do you have any sense as to how many buildings so maybe not just the units within them, but just how many new buildings are we seeing during this transformative time in Seattle's history? Right. I don't have a number for you off the top of my head. Um, one thing I think is interesting, though, about the types of buildings we're seeing is in this latest boom over the last 10 years or so, we're seeing a lot of construction downtown, uh, a lot of high-rises downtown, a lot of mid-rises in the neighborhood center. Um, and what that means is that the majority of our new units, probably about 75% of the units to come online in the last decade, are in these mid-rise or high-rise projects. Um, so we do see a lot of townhomes, obviously, but townhouses make up uh, a small fraction, really, of the total additional housing stock that we're seeing. And any other insight you can give us based off of your experience about where development is happening, not just downtown, but any other neighborhoods more prone to new buildings than others? Yeah, so uh, certainly downtown and then the neighborhoods surrounding it, Lower Queen Anne, South Lake Union, Capitol Hill, First Hill, those together account for um, probably a third of the overall development in Seattle. So they just stand out dramatically more than any other neighborhoods. After that, you get neighborhoods like Ballard, um, Columbia City, the U District. And I know if you're sitting in Ballard, that neighborhood looks like it's been transformed, and it certainly has, but it, it's actually built maybe half as much housing as Capitol Hill has, um, and dramatically less than the downtown core has overall. And is there any place that is not undergoing such a transformation? Are there any neighborhoods that you're seeing those little dots on your website show up far fewer than anywhere else? Yeah, the large majority of Seattle uh, does not have any development in it. Um, and I know that sort of sounds surprising, um, but when we think about development, we think about Ballard, we think about Capitol Hill, we think about downtown, we think about Columbia City. Um, but what you're not thinking is that if you go just eight blocks away from those city centers, you get into single-family neighborhoods. And those make up about two-thirds of Seattle, and you can't add housing there. Uh, so really what we're seeing is a very concentrated growth in a few neighborhoods, and that's actually exactly according to plan. So the city set out a plan 20, 25 years ago to concentrate growth in neighborhood centers, and it's done exactly that, and that has very predictable consequences that when you're in one of those neighborhood centers, it feels like everything is changing. Um, but actually, two-thirds of Seattle is hardly changing at all. You can't build new housing in the single-family neighborhoods, and you don't. And does SeattleInProgress.com also help people see whether their neighbor, what kind of house they're building on that lot that they're tearing down, that one-story bungalow? It does. It does. So um, you'll see your neighbor's project there. Um, if they're building a small enough project, a single-family home or just two or three units, then the architects aren't required by the city to submit um, drawings. So you only get imagery for generally stuff that's about four units or larger, 
you'll get a, a rendering of the proposed project. If it's just tearing down an old bungalow to build a new single family home, uh, unfortunately, you'll get a description of the project, but no picture of what that home will look like. Any concluding thoughts on the transformation underway here in Seattle? Well, you know, how Seattle transforms is really up to the people. Um, the council elections matter, the mayoral elections matter. Uh, but more than that, you know, the day-to-day business of the city is done in council hearings, in public meetings. Um, and to a large extent, the people that show up get to set the agenda. So I just urge everybody um, to look into that a bit more. And if you want to hear more about what Seattle Tech Workers for Housing is doing and um, how the tech industry in particular can push for better policies, um, definitely shoot me an email. Um, but really, whoever shows up over the next year or two is, is going to get to set the agenda. So it's, it's really essential to engage in local politics. That's my message. Ethan, thank you very much for joining me and sharing your perspective. I really appreciate hearing your voice today. Thank Thanks you. Thanks so much for having me. That is all for today's episode of Seattle Growth Podcast. Have your own story of how development has affected your life? I want to hear from you. Reach out to me on Twitter, at Prof Shulman. We have more to come in this new season of Seattle Growth Podcast, with new episodes coming out every week. Please subscribe to the podcast in iTunes so you don't miss a single one. Next week, join me as you will hear rare insights from people who are driving the physical changes in this city. You will hear from two real estate developers about their process and how you can influence it. The episode features in-depth interviews with Liz Dunn of Dunn & Hobbs. I mean, I love this city, and I always want to be careful how I answer this question. It comes up a lot. It is a, a, a constant source of conversation in this city as to why new development is so ugly. And with Joe Ferguson of Lake Union Partners. As a city of neighborhoods, there's an identity to each commercial district. And in the late 90s, when the comprehensive plan was updated with um, urban villages, it only encouraged more of that density, both housing and retail, amongst different commercial nodes throughout the city. These two interviews give you unfiltered insight into how and why new buildings are popping up in your neighborhood. I'm Jeff Shulman, and I thank you for joining me on this journey of the third season of Seattle Growth Podcast.